So Hi Felicia is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. One of my guilty pleasures is Criminal Minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an unsub by the fact that, that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I I do do that. So I am using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends, folks who are basically in my sphere at first to interview and have some conversations. Because I've always been curious about, you know, where people come from, what their interests are. And I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about, maybe I know nothing about. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests. And um, please feel free to comment, send questions, um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on Hi Felicia. This is one of my poems. It's called Blue is the Color of the Year. Blue is her favorite color. Gray blue is the color of my father's eyes. They have a mood more than a color. His eyes are the ocean as a storm rolls in, sad, lonely, dramatic, and full of stories. My parents have an ugly, nubby blue dining room carpet that always looks dirty. My father resists changing it. Blue is the color of her sweater. It's the one reportedly stolen by a nurse. I find it at the bottom of her closet in a pile of dirty clothes. Did you look in the closet? She responds as if reminiscing. Why would I look for something when I don't know where it is? Navy blue is the color of the fuzzy blanket I bought for her nursing home bed because she's always cold. She is shrunken down to a small bag of misshapen bones and white hair. The house I grew up in was always freezing. She turned the heat down and opened the windows in all seasons to feel the fresh air so she wouldn't suffocate. I don't wear a lot of blue. It's not a color that looks good on me, or so she has told me. Blue suppresses your appetite. There are not many foods that are blue, so our brain tells us to stop eating. Now you're trying to think of blue food. I have Murano blue kitchen glasses that give me pause whenever I drink out of them. I wonder if I stop because I remember they're blue or my brain is reacting independently to the color. Bright blue is a douchey car color. I don't even like riding in one. It's an embarrassingly obvious color that makes me uncomfortable, like the increasing complexity of my coffee order. Blue is the child of two parent colors, cyan and magenta. Whenever someone tells me their favorite color is blue, I think of her. Classic blue is the color of the year for 2020. Perhaps this will be her year. Felicia, and I'm the host of Hi Felicia podcast. My guest today is Rilda Kissel. And by way of introduction, how do you tell people about yourself? It's a good first question. I am a parent. 
I have two kids that are four and seven, and I work in higher education, and I'm really interested in student life, student support, student mental health, that sort of thing. Um, I'm a wife, and I am um, right now sort of in the midst of my identity as a daughter to um, um, my mom who has Alzheimer's. So I consider myself a caregiver Mm -hmm. in some ways. And a storyteller. And a storyteller, that's right. Um, I got involved in storytelling through a roundabout way, and it's kind of become a hobby of mine. And I'm currently involved in some storytelling stuff at work, and I'm facilitating a storytelling workshop at Follow Your Art in Melrose. That's lovely. Yeah. And you're local. You're in Melrose. I live in Melrose, yes. Nice. How long have you been in Melrose? We have been in Melrose for four years, and before that, we were in Stoneham for a few years. Awesome. Yeah. And we met because I had Cheryl Hamilton on my podcast and after she had taught the storytelling class at Mass Mouth. Right. And as we were talking about, I think perhaps I was explaining to her my caregiving story of my mom who has dementia. And uh, she's like, you should watch Rilda Kissel's Stories by the Stage. Yep. Storytelling about her mom who has Alzheimer's. And I was like, oh, Okay. And I did, and I was like, oh, my God, I have to have her on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, Cheryl is amazing. She's been a mentor to me ever since I took the Crafter Story class at Mass Mouth. And then because she's involved with the Stories from the Stage, which is a WGBH show, she reached out to me because my story that I workshopped in her class happened to fit the topic of this show that they were taping that month. And so I was kind of like, oh, Cheryl, I don't know. TV, um, but she's just brilliant and helped me work through my nerves and helped me continue to craft my mm-hmm. story. So that was a really cool experience. For me. Had you ever thought of yourself as a storyteller before? <sighs> um, no. So it really all started when I work at a graduate school of education and the dean of our school wanted, he's he was just a huge fan of like the moth and story core mm-hmm. and podcasts and those sorts of things. And he saw the relationship between storytelling and education. Mm-hmm. Um And I mean, Terry Tempest Williams said that storytelling is the oldest form of education. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to bring a storytelling project to our school. And so he um, enlisted one of my colleagues who works in marketing communications to create this event. And it's called Double Take. And the idea was that students, faculty and staff would tell stories Mm -hmm. to show the depth of our community and the diversity of people's experiences Mm -hmm. and what brought them to Harvard for whatever reason. And so my colleague, um, knew that I liked to write. Um, I had just posted, a, I just got a blog um, posted on Scary Mommy, which is like mm-hmm. a... Yep, I've heard of it. Yeah, and it was about um, that particular piece I wrote was about managing my grief through distance running. Mm. And I just happened to submit it to Scary Mommy. I never do anything like that. And it got, um, it got published. And so um, my colleague you know, I'd mentioned it to him and he's like, well, you should do the storytelling thing and, and having no idea if it was going to be popular or not. Mm-hmm. And um, so I told a story about my mom and that original story was about our road to her diagnosis and sort of what that was like and how diagnosing someone with Alzheimer's is really complicated. Yeah. Um, and how the journey that we went on and the, and the journey that I had with my dad when he was increasingly like, oh, it's just stress. Yeah. And I had to be the one that was like, this isn't right. This isn't right. And yeah. what was my big trigger was when my daughter was born in 2015, I, in, I introduced them at the hospital. And the next day, my mom forgot her name. Yeah. And I just sort of snapped. And I, I don't know if it was the hormones or the whatever, but I kind of put... 
you know, bottom line with my dad and said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to get answers. We're going to get more tests. We're going to get answers because this is not right. Like my mom would never do that if she was not facing something terrible. Mm -hmm. So that's what that story was about. And I told it um, at my work and the response I received was just so overwhelming and so powerful in a way that I didn't anticipate. I mean, when I talk about it now, like I, I remember sitting down and this is an auditorium surrounded by the students that I work with and my colleagues that I work with, like, you know, making Excel charts. <laughs> and I stood up and told something deeply personal and it felt so vulnerable. But when I sat down, I just felt lighter. Yeah. Like I just felt like everyone in this room knows what I'm going through now. Yeah. And I don't have to you know, have this thing in the back of my mind that like, oh, my mom is sick, but I'm not going to talk about it, you know? know? And the response I received was, I'll never forget it. Like a week after I did it, I got an email from a student that I don't even work with. And he said, um, my dad's not going to be at graduation this year because I just lost him to Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And then he quoted a line from my story. Yeah, like, that's powerful. Back to me. And I was thinking like, how does he even remember but he remembers because it resonated. Yeah. And that like that interaction at all, like made it all worth it. Right. Um, so then I got involved in the project at Harvard and I um, I wanted it to continue. So I told my colleague that I would help in any way that I could. So for the next iterations of this project, I coached and I helped pick the tellers and I advertised it and um and I could sympathize with the tellers once they got picked and they were thinking like, I don't want to do this. And I was kind of like, no, that's how I felt. Like, I almost threw up. Um, and, and that's what led me to mass mouth because I thought, okay, do I really know what I'm talking about? Like I had one good, you know, I, I, I got lucky once, but I want to learn more about how a story is crafted and what yeah. makes a good story. So I took the class at mass mouth and, and it, I went into the class thinking, I don't want to talk about Alzheimer's anymore. Right. I want to write like a love story. <laughs> but it was so top of mind for me that that's just what came out. So that story is about the nursing home journey mm -hmm. and choosing the nursing home. Yeah. Um, and that's the one that got to stories from the stage. And um, so, yeah, it's been a it was a fun. And now I continue to be involved in the project at work. Um, I have a more leadership role in the project at work and That's I just, awesome. um, I just convinced me, I just convinced them to send me to a three day training at the moth in New York. Nice. So in February, I'm going down to New York to learn more about storytelling. Awesome. I'm super excited. And I'm teaching, um, I'm facilitating a workshop at Fall Your Art in Melrose, yeah. um, which has been awesome. Like I tell people if they're interested in finding out about it, sure. how they do that. So Follow Your Art is um, a nonprofit art, I don't know what word they want to use, collaborative in mm -hmm. um, Melrose where they have drop-in classes and um, all kinds of um, art-centered activities. You can even rent space there for writing. Okay. And so after I went on this kind of media blitz with storytelling, they had just transitioned to a larger space and they were advertising, like, do you have anything that you could offer? Mm -hmm. And so I wrote to the owner, Chris Odikio, and said, have you ever thought about doing storytelling? And she wrote me back immediately and was like, we would love that. Mm -hmm. And so um, <laughs> then it was kind of like, okay, cool. Who are you going to get to do that? <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, me? Like, <laughs> I could do it? And so- That's a great idea, Rilda. Why don't you do that? Yeah. And, I, and I, I mean, I think that- I don't want to speak general, but I think we all struggle with sort of, I don't feeling like 
I don't have the qualifications for yeah, this. Imposter syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm not going to get them unless I keep pushing myself. Yeah. So the first class was in November and five women signed up and it was so much fun. And they all came with super cool ideas for stories. And we we talked about what makes good stories and then we workshop stories and then we did a little mini recital right in Follow Your Art. And so it. I'm offering the second one right now. Um, we're, it's only three sessions, so we're, we're in the middle of it. And for the final session, we've, I've invited back the alums from the first session. So I'm hoping it just builds and builds and builds so that we have these sort of storytelling nights at Follow Your Art. So it's been wonderful. And I learn as much from them as they're learning from me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you got your education element in there. You've got your sort of, I think, um, you and I talked offline initially, like I really resonated with how you view your role in your family and some of the caregiving stuff, but also your sort of persistence, Mm -hmm. your doggedness and your resilience in trying to process all the different things, but still being able to have some outlets, like you mentioned running, you mentioned storytelling. How does running fit into that for you? Like, how do you find that therapeutic? I've all, I guess I've always been a runner and I use running because I have young kids and I work full time. I don't really get a lot of time alone. And I find when that happens, when you don't be still sometimes in your thoughts, then you don't have time to really work through them yeah. and things start to feel bottled. And, and so I found that running became my time to process. And, um, I started like, I would literally use my, in education, I'm sorry to interrupt you in education. When you are a certain kind of a learner, like that you need to be physically moving. What is that called? Remember, Is it kinesthetic learning? kinesthetic learning so that might be the kind of processor you are absolutely and when you're running um if you start crying no one can distinguish it from sweat so that's beautiful I love that but yeah I would I would use I remember difficult conversations with my dad early on where I'd have to say like dad you have to let her like you have to tell her she can't drive anymore like those sorts of kind of that felt um could be aggressive you know to have to have to make my dad make those choices and I would use my run to like practice that conversation um and and kind of imagine what his responses might be and and how I could then respond and so the more I thought about it and the the essay that I wrote for scary mommy I started to compare running and grief and kind of the idea that if you want to be a good long distance runner you just have to keep running and you can't really skip the miles. You can't really right. get to mile 10 until you get through mile six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. And that's with grief. Like you can't really avoid it. Right. And you're not going to get to the other side of healing unless you just go through it. Right. And that sort of endurance reminds me of how I feel about what I'm going through with my mom. Yeah. Um, so that's, and, and yeah, I just kept running the runs just getting longer and becoming more therapeutic and it's been really good for me and I don't I don't think every I don't think that anyone that's going through something difficult has to take up distance running but I definitely think you have to make space for yourself yeah to feel whatever it is you're going through yeah and in the when from from my experience I do a lot of writing and um, I'm always shocked at sort of what comes out 
And I love that sometimes it's a jumble and other times it's very well formed and, or you'll come back to something. And I never necessarily named it as grief, but I see it a little more clearly as you just explained it because the process is so ongoing and every stage is different. And some of the frustration that I've felt as I saw things happening like five, six, seven years ago that didn't make sense with my mom. And I had to be the detective and put things together. And my, her spouse, my dad, is um, very much the gatekeeper, but also was explaining things away like, oh, it's this or oh, it's that or, and then backtracking through and finding out, oh no, she's been doing that for a long time. And even now, she she's in a she's in a semi stable place, and um, she's in a nursing home when she has medication. But even now, my dad and I are still kind of having struggles around. Like, Dad, she needs more clothes, and he'll be like, "Well, she just hands them back to me to take them home. We'll put them in the closet." Like, yeah, like she needs more clothes because she's got issues with incontinence and so she's trying to do she's trying to self-care and she can't manage it properly so it's sort of like more clothing would help that process but my dad is sort of like doesn't want to have an argument with her around clothing so he continues to bring like the same three things back to her yeah and I'm like dad like it's seasonal like give her well she's not going to go outside and I'm like dad like just yeah yeah, it's a, I, I feel like I could write a whole book about my relationship with my dad. It, it's true. It started, I mean, my, my mom was always much more of the hands-on parent. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just, I just think about like being in college and calling home and like, hey dad, how are classes? Good. Is mom there? Yeah. <laughs> and then he'd like hand the yeah, phone over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how it was. And then as my mom got sick, our relationship has just had to evolve and right. our roles has had to shift. And I've definitely, in some ways, I know I've filled the role that my mom used to play for him in terms of like keeping him on track. Yeah. Because she took care of everything for him. Yeah. And so that's been a strange place for me to kind of become yep. like his partner and talk yep. about money and the things that we would never talk yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just recent. And, but then sometimes I need to remind him like, you're still my dad. <laughs> and right. I lost, I've lost my mom for all intents and purposes. So sometimes I need him to be the dad. Yes, absolutely. The, like the, I, I just got really upset. Like Christmas was hard. I was just feeling sad about yeah. my mom. And I had one conversation with my dad where he was kind of being negative. And I was like, you know what, dad, I just need you to tell me everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And wish me a Merry Christmas. And good for you that you yeah. said that. Yeah. I've yeah. had to tell my dad a couple of times because my dad is very hearing impaired and he's still very sharp. He's still, um, he still, you know, manages pretty well, but he can get frustrated when communicating with me and he sort of barks orders at me. And I've had to, it's, it kind of brings me up short and I'll say, like, I understand what you're saying, but don't yell at me. And also ask it as a question, not as a demand. Because if you want my help with something, it feels better to ask and he takes that feedback and he's like genuinely like, oh, I'm really sorry. So it's nice that we can have that conversation, but it's always hard to hear because I feel like you're you're the dad. Like I shouldn't have to remind you not to yell at me. Like yeah. we're on the same side here. Yeah. 
I always I think a lot about if my mom were well, how I would sometimes pull her aside and be like, how did you put up with dad? Has <laughs> like, he always been this stubborn? Because <laughs> I can't really have those conversations. Sometimes from the interactions that I have with my dad, things from my childhood make sense. Yes, but like absolutely. My mom had to <laughs> and, absolutely. You know, yeah. I've funny. I've read, uh, I've written about that actually recently. I wrote a piece and um, one of it was around a winter, I don't think it was the blizzard of 78, but it was around that time we had a station wagon and it got stuck in the driveway and um, my dad had the tow truck come and pull it out. And I thought, oh, great, you know, it's going to get fixed and we're going to get a new car or whatever. And my dad was steering it and he left the driver's side door open and it got stuck in the snowbank and it bent all the way back. And then the tow truck got it out of the driveway and <laughs> And so it would only go forward. It wouldn't go backward. And so my dad, he pushed the door back in so that it sort of fit. And then he put rope through the windows to tie it on. And then he drove around for like another month just going forward. And I was like, that's kind of emblematic of the thing here. Like my dad is like only can only move forward, can only move forward. doesn't matter if there's like rope and like doors that are bent and like we're just moving forward just here going. not going to pick up stuff along the way we're not going to worry about what's behind us it's just we're moving forward and there's something brave in that like head down approach and I'm sure I've inherited some of it but there's also something really frustrating about yeah. it because I can never get them to be like like let's look at this let's process it let's like talk about it he puts off a lot of decision-making, thinking my mom's going to get better or something. If he doesn't bring her more clothes at the nursing home, then she's going to come home or yeah. like, it's just like one, like, it's like almost like magical thinking yeah. kind of stuff. It's interesting because I, um, I started seeing a therapist when my mom got diagnosed, mainly because I was very concerned that this experience and that this time of grief was going to impact how I parent. Mm, and I, yeah. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't like the sad mom. <laughs> so yeah. I've been really hyper vigilant about being aware of my mental health and through running and through therapy and all those things. And I, I joke that I'm getting like kind of a three for one deal with my therapist because my brother, I have one sibling and my dad haven't they just don't subscribe really to yep. therapy, but I find myself echoing what my therapist says to them. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Instead sort of using some of her, like, yeah, but do you realize that when? <laughs> and I think, like, well, I'm really getting a good deal with this <laughs> because I'm taking her tidbits and then I'm passing them along. And and I and sometimes my dad will say things, and I recognize that he's just behind me in his processing of all of this. Right, right. Because I'm I'm just I'm in it like let's do it like if we're gonna ugly cry today let's do it right whereas my dad is is much more um much more reluctant to do that right right and so sometimes I just hear the things that he says and I think like that was me last year right right <laughs> you know? right but I've, I've already mourned that part of mom I've already grieved that part of mom like right. so I'm gonna help my dad through this as right. sensitively as I can um, thanks to my therapy and self-help books and, and all of those yeah. things. We had a big moment uh, last year getting my mom qualified for Mass Health and getting all their financial and legal stuff squared away, which was something that used to keep me up at night for like years thinking yeah. about, oh my God, what's like, 
My mom was my dad's healthcare proxy. She obviously couldn't function as that. Um, she was also my father's power of attorney. Um, so, you know, as it was explained to me, if that stayed in place, if something happened to my father, not only would my mother legally been the one making decisions, all of his assets would have gone to her. And then because she's in a nursing home would have gone to the nursing home, which just was like making me crazy. And I thought we can't do this. We just, it's not feasible. I need there to be more of a safety net. Yeah than me knowing I'm the the one trying to make these good decisions. Um, so it was a lot of wrangling, finding the right professionals, getting my dad to sit down, because he kept wanting to put it off, thinking that if my mom got better, because he thinks for a long time he was thinking she would get better, that he wouldn't need to do those things, or that she would find out about those things and he would have to have a conversation or an, an argument with her about it. Yeah, And... Um, she's at a place now where you could tell her that stuff and she wouldn't process it. And she also would be like maybe upset in the moment. And then she, like literally a minute later, she wouldn't remember we had that conversation. So, yeah, that's one thing I find this experience. I'm going through this kind of elder care stuff before I thought I would. I'm, I'm only in my 30s late 30s but we're gonna say 30s yes um, absolutely <laughs> claim it but that's one thing with my friends that are in you know my age range that I have I I kind of remind them that these are conversations that they should have absolutely. with their parents absolutely. all the things you described about um you know just long-term planning end-of-life wishes healthcare proxy knowing where you're like your parents' finances, all that stuff. Absolutely. And it's not fun to talk about, but if you wait until the situation that we're in, yeah. it's so much more complicated. So yeah. I'm a real hit at parties when I'm reminding my friends <laughs> to have end-of-life care conversations with their parents. I work <laughs> I work in uh, as my day job. I'm clinical editor for the largest long-term care insurance company. And so I work with all nurses. And one of the nurses who is my supervisor and I, she used to work hands-on care and long-term care. And she's like, I saw a lot of things because people didn't have plans in place, you know, 90-year-olds being with dementia, completely not understanding what was happening to them and needing to put IVs in them against their will. Yeah. And she's like, it really behooves you to have something in writing, especially when you're past the point of being able to consent for yourself so that your healthcare proxy or your stand-in or your loved one understands exactly what you want done and what you don't want done. Yeah, exactly. And she said that she has a very specific legal plan in place for her care, including what type of medications she wants, how she wants her body to be treated, what kind of care she would accept and wouldn't accept. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's really smart. And she said, it's just because healthcare professionals are trying to do what's best, but they're also mandated with sort of um, preserve life at all costs. Even if you have a DNR, which is a do not resuscitate order, there's still things like IVs and medications that they would administer, even if you have a do not resuscitate order yeah. in, in place. So it's, it's, it is stuff, it's really tough to think about for yourself, but I think um, knowing that you are responsible for making decisions for someone else who cannot consent and wouldn't understand 
the ramifications of a consent, it makes it even more um, important to me yeah. to know that yeah. and to, to have a plan in place. Yeah. So should we go into a more positive place? <laughs> um, not that that's not positive, yeah. but I think sometimes it can be heavy for people who are not in that space. I find it cathartic. I hear that you find it cathartic to talk about. So Yeah. Um, so do you ran the New York Marathon? <laughs> I did. This is quite an accomplishment. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that. Um, I was thinking about that when I was describing my path to storytelling and and so when, um, because of Cheryl Hamilton, when I was able to go on the WGBH TV show, it just, um, I kind of became temporarily like a poster girl for Alzheimer's awareness and Alzheimer's Association. I had previously done the walk in Boston and raised money. Um, we had a team with my family and my friends. Um, I, I'm proud of the name that, that Alzheimer's affects the synapse in your brain yep. that make connections. So our team was, oh, synapse. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. So we raised a lot of money. And so I have this relationship with the Alzheimer's Association. So I get all their emails about fundraising and everything. And I knew that they, they don't have a team for the Boston Marathon, but they have a team for New York. And so it was just sort of this, um, this perfect storm that I was that my story was creating so much um, attention about Alzheimer's and I was getting all these questions about Alzheimer's. And, and then meanwhile, I was getting these emails from the Alzheimer's Association. I was kind of, it was just a fluke. I wrote to, um, I wrote to the Alzheimer's Association of New York and I said, you know, what's your policy for getting a bib for the 2019? And this was you know, nine months before the marathon. And um, just out of curiosity. And it was one of those things I thought I was going to send it and then find out that there was a long process and then be like, oh, well, that was a fun idea. And the woman wrote me back and I'll never forget there was a PDF attached to it. And she said, you you can have a bib for 2019, just fill out the PDF. And you had to um, agree to fundraise. Right. And I wrote her back and I was like, oh, so you fill out the PDF and then like you go into a lottery, right? <laughs> like it's a lottery. And she was like, no, you have a bib. Just fill it out. I love and it. it. And then it was like, oh, wow. That's, That's amazing. So, yeah, I'd only run half marathons before, but I, you know, it happened. I got the bib. So I worked backwards and found a plan um, to train. I think it was 18 weeks. And I just had a thing that I printed out and I hung on the fridge. And I know there's a lot of apps for this, but I like the tactile mm -hmm. crossing out of the miles mm -hmm. every time. And yeah, it was it was a really great experience. And it opened up yet another community to me. Um, yeah. I've made some dear friends at the Marathon Sports. They're very knowledgeable there. Yep. And they helped me with like socks and nutrition and um, chafing and all of the things mm -hmm. that come with those number of miles that I hadn't anticipated. So, yeah. So this November I went down to New York and I was able to attend a lunch for the Alzheimer's team, which was really great. Um, and striking. I'm always, whenever I'm in those circles, I'm always the youngest yeah. that has a parent. Everyone I talk to that's my age tells me their story about grandma. And yeah. I'm always like, it's my mom, and she was 65 when she was diagnosed. So yeah. it's not the my favorite role to play, but um, I think I represent. It's important for people to understand that this does happen to people that are younger. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not always someone in their 90s at a nursing home that starts to show symptoms. Yeah. So yeah, and then I ran 26 miles, and it was awesome. It was hard, but um, 
one thing that I was really taken aback by is the the crowds and the the signs, the wit of the signs that yeah. people were holding up. Yeah, yeah. Was that kept me entertained? I just kept. I tried to th- not focus on how tired I was and just read the signs that people had. And there was like there was an entire gospel choir on a step oh my of God. a church in Brooklyn. There was a dr- um in Brooklyn. There was a drum line. Along the road. I love it. Um, it was like a carnival. It was really wonderful. I, I mean, I don't, I love Boston, but I'm, I will say that the New York fans really step it up a notch in terms of their signage and their screaming cool. and their noise. So it was pretty cool. What did you learn from the experience? I learned that I can do hard things. Absolutely. And I learned that, you know, I mean, it sounds that you and it's just goes back to grief and that the idea that when I think about the journey with my mom, when I think about the next steps, I get really overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, nursing home yeah, is yeah. next. And then the continued deterioration. And if I go to the place where I think about the things after that, I get really overwhelmed. And so I'm reminded to do the next thing. Just do your best with the next step. And if the next step is going to be getting her settled in a nursing home and helping my dad through that process, that's the next thing I have to do. Um, And then I'll worry about those other things as they come. And that's true for running too. Yeah. You can't think of the 25th mile when you're on the fourth. And so you just have to do the next mile. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) I don't know if you are um, up on the Frozen movies. But I, I haven't have a, seen them, but I'm aware of them culturally. Well, I have a four-year-old, and in Frozen 2, I don't want to give any spoiler alert. <laughs> Frozen 2, there is a moment where Princess Anna thinks that she has lost Princess El- Queen Elsa. Okay. And she thinks that she's perished. And she sings this song. And I'm telling you, I wept in the theater like, yeah. like a crazy person. I had to, like put my hoodie up so no one because it's a children's movie and there's all these kids there but the lyrics are literally like do the next right thing yeah like don't think of the future don't think of my life without Elsa just do the next step yeah. and I was just kind of like that's grief like that's, that's um so if anyone needs a good cry and you're dealing with grief you can check out the Frozen 2 soundtrack yeah. and the song do the next right thing the um, I saw Little Women with a friend of wow. mine, and that killed me in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And it really was about the family unit and how um, Marmy and Laura Dern's performance as the mother and just um, really missing that maternal thing. Like, and my mom wasn't, you know, there's my mom and I have uh, had a contentious relationship at times and. She was, uh, she is a, a difficult person. Um, but the thing that I missed most, and I'm afraid I'm going to get emotional here. No, it's okay. Um, is that uh, she always called me to sing happy birthday. Mm. And she hasn't done that the past three years because she doesn't remember it's my birthday. Yeah. And then what has happened is that my dad doesn't remember it's my birthday. That happens to me too. And so... This year and last year, I was actually in my parents' home on my birthday, and nobody said anything. And I said several times, like, it's my birthday today, and nobody said anything. Um, But this year, two friends of mine spontaneously called me and and sang happy birthday. That's awesome. 
So it was like, I, I sort of feel like, you know, you the, that's part of grief too. You're losing one thing, but in some way you're gaining something else. And like, I didn't say to anybody, hey, nobody calls me and sings happy birthday. And two people just spontaneously, it was almost like the universe knew that I needed yeah. somebody to sing to me. And that's the thing about what we're dealing with, I find with dementia and Alzheimer's is that, and I'm, I'm not minimizing anyone else's loss, but when when you lose a parent, everyone sort of recognizes like, oh, this is your first Christmas without your mom. Yeah. This is your first birthday without your mom. But when you lose them in the way that we're losing them, that's not obvious to people. Yeah. Like I can't pinpoint when the first Christmas without my mom was, but it's definitely already happened. Yeah. Because she wasn't able, she didn't know it was Christmas. She didn't buy me a present. She didn't interact. Right. Yep. And so I, I can really relate to like, my birthdays are really hard because I'm having my birthdays without my mom. Right. But there's no kind of community of, you know, my friends being like, oh, this must be really tough first round of holidays without your mom. Like it's already happened. Right. Um, and that this year was the first year that I was really vocal. I was more vocal about that because Christmas was hard. And I was on like a text thread with some of my girlfriends from home that know my family and know what's going on. And they were all talking about the holidays. And I said something like, yeah, this year feels hard. And they were all kind of like, what do you mean real? Like, do you need a girl's night out? Like what's, and I felt like I kind of have to remind them like, yeah. you know, my mom's sick and I know, I don't know if you know, but by now sh there's pretty much no yep. record. And so I'm having a Christmas without my mom. Yeah. So like that. And I think it's not that they forget, but yeah. I just think that Alzheimer's and dementia related things are hard for people to understand that you're feeling that loss, yep. even though they, they haven't passed away. Absolutely. Complicated. A friend of mine just uh, texted a really beautiful picture of her and her mom. She took her mom out for lunch on her mom's birthday. Her mom is exactly the same age as my mother. She actually has the same name as my mother. Oh, um, and her mom is like vibrant and, you know, decked out and has makeup on and can interact and, um, you know, she's mobile and all these things that my mom unfortunately had doesn't have and um I was so thrilled to have the picture sent to me but there was also a part of me that was kind of jealous yeah yeah that's not ever going to be yeah I just experienced that with my in-law my in-laws are visiting for the holiday and watching them interact with my kids is bittersweet because yeah. my my mom's not able to have that relationship with my parents and then I had this weird um like I said earlier I feel like I keep I'm very mindful of my grief and, and therapy and all these things, but sometimes it just sneaks up on you and Absolutely. Gut, gut punches you no matter how you try Absolutely. to anticipate. And I went, my husband, my in-laws and I went to assembly row for a nice little outing. Yeah. And, um, my mother-in-law wanted to go shopping and she and I ended up in the Ann Taylor for some reason. And, um, it just all of a sudden struck me that she was like telling me what would look nice on me and she wanted, she insisted on buying what I was going to purchase as like a late Christmas present. And it just was like a gut punch of like, yeah. I haven't been shopping with my mom in a really, like, I don't remember yeah. how, you know, yeah. and that we're never going to do this. And I, and I just kind of like, just felt myself kind of shutting down and I didn't want to talk to her about it too. That's what's complicated too. Sometimes is Annie yeah. and Taylor, you don't want to turn to your mother-in-law and say like, this is actually triggering feelings of mom loss for me. <laughs> like, could you please put the khakis down? <laughs> um, 
but luckily my husband is um, super supportive and um, when we reconnected the the men and the women folk who had split up he could tell and and I just kind of gave him this look and it yeah. clicked like yeah Jarell just had a mom we call it a wave you know yeah, a wave of grief absolutely. and um so then I I don't know I probably went over eight or did something yeah something definitely pacify, but it's yeah. it's funny how different things trigger it I know I think it was last year I had to sign something that would allow them to give my mom a certain medication and um that hit me really hard like I was like this is because she can no longer understand to consent for herself and I sort of just felt the weight or the responsibility of that and also there was like a deep 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 sadness because my mom was she was always the one that was like bossy and in control and you know my dad and I offline would call her the director (laughs) because she was so hardcore and hard fast and you know, managing things and details and um, part of the issue with some of her health conditions is because she thought she knew better. So um, there's also like a sadness in that um, she has a, an internal fortitude and a, like a, a solid, such a solid base, but that also is the thing that worked against her in yeah. getting this diagnosis but I just remember looking at that paperwork and signing it and sending it back to the nursing home and being like, yeah, oh, yeah, I felt really sad. Yeah. And and I have a spouse and he's very supportive. He's lost both of his parents, um, but he's, he's so sweet and he rolls with things. And my mom is always happy to see him, but she doesn't really remember him. So she does a lot of like, oh, it's you. And he's like, yeah, she doesn't remember my name. And she remembers we're getting married. Sometimes she thinks we're already married, which is fine. Um, and but she just doesn't remember his name. Yeah. Um, and I'm waiting for that with me. Um, yeah. So it, how far is your mom from things? Is she still verbal? Yep. Yeah. But definitely um, it's not it's not really like conversation anymore. Um, so yeah. it, it, it advanced very quickly for her. Yeah, I think so. It feels, it's hard to tell. I feel like it all blends together, but I just, I think it was November. My dad, um, my dad's a retired, retired air force and he was invited to this holiday party for retirees. Mm -hmm. And I could tell he really wanted to go. And since my mom's still home, um, I insisted that I went up for the weekend and so that my dad could go and stay over with his Air Force retiree friends and whatever. So I was alone with her like overnight. And that was the first time I've done that for a while when I wasn't distracted by my kids and like the chaos of like family events and stuff. And I was struck by um, how how it's advanced and how I think that my dad is so in it that he doesn't recognize um, how hard his life is and how things have gotten worse because he just kind of rolls with it. But, um, and there's some things that I remember coming home and telling my husband that like Alzheimer's is so weird and she does really weird things and you kind of just have to laugh. Like my dad didn't have any good food in the house. So I ended up getting us pizza one night and my mom was never like a big eater. She was, you know, Um, and I like gave her a piece and she ate it. And then I sort of say like, mom, would you like another piece? And she kind of 
responds back in something that doesn't make sense, you know? And I say, oh, okay. And I just put another piece, piece on her plate and like she ate that. And then a little while later, I just kind of slip another and, and myself. I'm thinking like, damn, she's hungry. <laughs> like, did I forget to give her lunch? But um, just kind of observing, um, it's just, it's a really strange, another thing that I've, I'd found in their house, which I had to laugh slash cry at the same time is when I got married, my photographer gave us, in which I've been married for 12 years, my photographer gave us all these extra prints that we didn't order. He somehow had them and it was like a bonus gift. And so my parents had this like envelope of nice prints from our wedding just in a file cabinet or something in their little home office. And I had kind of forgotten about them and Alzheimer's makes you do strange, unexplainable things. And my mom went, found those pictures and cut all the heads off of the people, um, like the groomsmen and everyone, (laughs) and then like circulated them around the house. And so (laughs) I would like open the silverware drawer and there was like one of our groomsmen's head just like... (laughs) floating like in the smooths <laughs> and it's so tragic it's so sad yes. when I think about like what is what has happened to my mother's brain right that she would destroy this memento from one of the right, most important right, right. days of my life and like she would never do that and this is so weird and the yeah. brain is so complicated yeah. but it's also like really funny that there's groomsmen heads all over their house, like everywhere. I opened one of her dresser drawers and there was like a random guest who was like, even she was like in the backdrop of a picture and she's still like, I don't know. And so I, and that's one thing I went home, whenever I'm with my mom, I usually, I usually keep it together and I try to be as helpful as I can. And I'm, I'm, I kind of soldier, like I'm going to change the sheets on the bed and I'm going to make lunch and I'm going to do whatever. And then I have to recover and my husband really experiences the recovery. You know, we'll, we'll get the kids to bed. And w- when it's quiet, I have a minute to think about the sights and the scenes of, yeah. of what I had yep. s- or w- something my mom said or something. And this time I just p- pulled out the groomsmen heads and I was just kind of like, <laughs> look what I found. <laughs> and like we had a good laugh slash cry over yep. it because that's what you what you have to do to to get through it my mom uh was really hard to diagnose um and she has a dementia unspecified she can be paranoid and then she can get psychotic Mm. um so that's unfortunate and also really hard to manage but some of her hallucinations um at times could be really scary but also kind of funny and so when I went in her closet looking for clothes to bring her to the nurse, bring to the nursing home for her, she had a ton of shoe boxes. And my mom was always a huge shopper and had a ton of clothes and still her closet was packed. And so I was looking for a pair of shoes to bring her that would be comfortable. And I'm unpacking these, these shoe boxes that are like, my mom is also like a weird, like she always did this, but it was even more with dementia people where they wrap something and then they wrap it and then they put a rubber band around it and they put it in another bag. And so there's like multiple layers of things or they fold paper a lot. <clears throat> so I un- undid the shoe box that had a rubber band around it and opened it. And it was like things wrapped in tin foil. And I was like, so I unwrapped the tin. It was like all my mom's precious china. She had put in tin foil, wrapped in paper, and then put in shoe boxes in the closet. Safe, <laughs> not accessible. But <laughs> and safe. I was like, 
what? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and so I, and then I sort of looked at the closet and there was like maybe a dozen shoe boxes. And I thought, oh shit, everything in here is probably yeah. like something that should be out. And like, she just was really concerned that someone was stealing them and that. Yeah. And now what happens is she'll put them away and then she's like, well, they're gone. So somebody must've taken them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when I had to go through, I went through my mom's jewelry and like hit all the stuff that's like of high value mm. because I know that her healthy self would be sad if she lost, yeah. you know, a bracelet or something that's been in our family for us, but she does weird stuff with them, like puts them in the knife drawer. Yeah, so yeah. we've left out more kind of like costume stuff that she can fiddle with and play with. But yeah. the things that like I want passed down to my daughter, we yep. we because that's what I know that she would want. My dad just recently gave me my mom's diamond and her wedding band. And I said, could I use them when we create our band? So we went to a really nice jeweler in Cambridge and um, we chose bands that sort of look like um, almost like branches. And then he said, you know, I can't melt your mom's band down. But what I could do is um, put it as beads. So that's what my wedding brand will have beads of my mom's band on it. Awesome. That's awesome. And um, I just love the idea that it would be incorporated in that way. And I think if I could have the conversation with her in some way where she would understand, she would be happy about that yeah, too. But my dad gave his permission. So yeah. I thought that's, Slowly. you know, yeah. that's good. So, yeah, I was, I was um, thinking when you talked about the difficulty of diagnosis and, and what we went through with my mom. And um, I, I don't know if you, you watch or if you're, listener the this is us oh god that kills me it was killing me yeah, yeah. and but the, she was so cooperative my yeah. mom was never that cooperative. well at the end of last season when they or one of the seasons where they fast forward it and they alluded yeah. to yeah. I remember thinking if they do a, a damn Alzheimer's storyline I don't know if I can watch this anymore yeah and so I I sat down to watch this one and it actually I think it was well done and it did definitely take me back to, I, I remember my mom's initial test and when she had to just do like draw circles and <clears throat> squares and, and them saying it's cognitive decline, but we're not sure what it is. Cause like yeah. you said, there's so many different places yep. I can go. Yep. Um, so in a way I'm glad that more people are learning about how complicated these diseases are to diagnose and how gradual they can be. And um, how fraught it all can be. And yeah. I found, I found, I don't know if you've had this experience when you know that there's like a particular song or a particular something that you is going to make you cry. Yeah. You and look for it. You look for it sometimes because you know that you need to do that in that moment. Yeah. And so I think this is us, this season might just be one of those things that Absolutely. I keep in the DVR. And on the days that I don't want to do it, yeah, I'll go back to Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is my oh, current binge. Love, but love, on the love, days love. where I'm feeling like things are bottled and I need a good tear duct cleanse, then I, I will watch the episodes. But the one that um, I also find fairly reliable for a good cry is Anne with an E. Mm, I haven't seen which that. is the remake of Anne of Green Gables. Okay, so yeah, well, I'll keep that. In mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really tough too because. Um, you know, I'm 50-something, and my mom was diagnosed when she was 70-something, late 70s. 
Um, but I felt like it was a long time coming so that I can't imagine that frustration. And also I've had a little bit of life experiencing dealing with some of my mother's other medical stuff. So, um, you know, I'm trying to empathize a bit with your situation and being that young and having a young family and a lot of things, other things on your plate and, and then being like, whoa, something's wrong with my mom. What's going on? Well, and it was, yeah, it it definitely came on so slowly that it could be confused with stress or other things. But I remember, like, so I got married in 2012, and I look back now, and I remember my mom, we got married in my hometown, and my husband's from the Midwest, so we were hosting a bunch of people, and I remember my mom, like, wanted something to do, and we would talk about wedding planning, we had a binder, and we'd do all this stuff, Mm -hmm. and she was, like, in charge of booking the, like, block of hotels, and picking which hotel in my town would be the best rate and the best experience for the guests, and she went and blocked the room, and she told them, you know, Kissel Wedding, September 29th, and they said, okay, great, just tell the people to call and say Kissel Wedding, whatever, and it was taken care of, and then every time I would talk to her, she'd say like, okay, and I got the hotels booked. And I was just annoyed because I was like, had so many other things on my plate. And I was like, yeah, mom, I know. Thanks. All set. And then I remember her telling me once like, well, I swung by the hotel to make sure that the hotels were all set. And I remember thinking like, that's so weird. Why did, why did she do that? Like it's all set. Like what, why does she fixated on this? She normally could have handled a million tasks and my brother and I schedules and her job and all this stuff. And at that time, I thought she was just like a stressed mother of the bride. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it continued and continued, but she wasn't diagnosed until 2015. So I look back and I think, Alzheimer's, you wicked beast. Right. You were already part of our lives in a tiny little sliver, yeah. you know, all of that time. Um, until it got, I mean, then, it, like I said, when my daughter, when she forgot my daughter's name, that's when we kind of like got the diagnosis. And it's to see how it gets worse and worse and worse. Like she used to be really active and she'd ride her bike all the time. And so my dad was comfortable knowing if she has a certain route, if she leaves at this time, I know she'll be back by this time. And if she doesn't come back, I know I can retrace the steps. I know exactly. And that worked for like a year. She would ride her bike. And then one day she said, Ed, I'm going on my bike ride. He said, okay. And she didn't come back. Yeah. And he, I remember that was a few years ago now, but I remember him calling me here in Melrose and he said, I, I didn't, I don't want you to worry, but I don't know where she is. I've had to call the police because she was gone from like eight o'clock in the morning until two o'clock in the afternoon. And so I drove up there like a crazy person and they didn't find her till nine o'clock at night. Mm. And she had ridden like Lance Armstrong level <laughs> miles, like I don't know, miles and miles to the next town. She was on an abandoned railroad track and it was horrifying. And I don't know, she didn't have any water. She didn't have any, luckily someone came upon her and knew something was off and called the police. And they, of course, had been looking for her. And I I don't know what happened in her brain that day that made her not decide to do the route that she knew she was supposed to do. I know. But that's how it works. Like there is no rhyme or reason to when it's going to be worse. And this is a terrible comparison, but I think sometimes it's almost like, um, I wish sometimes I wish that I knew what my dog was thinking 
and sometimes with my mom like because she can't communicate it, it it's too jumbled mm-hmm. that I I wish there was like a translator yeah. that you could put over the head and be like this is what I was thinking at the time yeah. or this is what's going on in my brain now yeah and like my mom is still very verbal and um she just confuses time and place and person, but she's still very verbal and it's, it usually makes sense. Um, she's also in the phase where I gave her some Christmas presents. One of which was, she loves dogs. One of which was this little like door stopper I got at the Christmas tree shop, but it's a picture of a dog, but it's fluffy. So it's not like a stuffed animal, but it somewhat looks like a realistic dog. She opened it and she was like, oh my God, he's beautiful. I'm going to call him blah, 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 blah. And then she started talking to him like he was a real dog. But it was beautiful because she was so excited about the present. And I sort of felt like there there was a story recently where um, they've been giving... Alzheimer's patients animatronic animals to take care of and just like their faces light up and they're they're petting them and yeah and for that reason my kids think that Grammy is super fun to play with (laughs) because she's really good like she does that kind of stuff yeah and they just think like wow she's better at like pretend yeah (laughs) um which is a weird thing to have to explain to them sometimes but yeah my mom does that kind of stuff or she'll um She'll be talking about someone who's not there or the person down the hall or sometimes she has a lot of her stories are scary. So she'll be like, your father fell and then the doctors had to come or he had a car accident. And and so everything is usually now about how my dad has hurt himself mm-hmm. and none of it is true. And I'll say to my dad, like, did you fall? And he'll be like, no, 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 your mom's on that story. It's like not a, but my mom still believes that my dad works. And so when he leaves her at the nursing home, he'll say, I have to go to work now. And she'll be like, okay, I'll see you later. Yeah. And that's the way that they've agreed to say goodbye. And he's okay with that. Yeah. I learned that. I remember, I learned that early on because what was hard for me was that because my mom didn't have a diagnosis and because my dad was sort of in denial, it was me having, like, I would correct her sometimes. And I'd be like, Ma, you told me that. Or Ma, because I didn't know I didn't know what was going on. And so I started, when I was trying to get her diagnosed, I reached out to, um, they're in Waltham, the Jewish Family Services. Yep. They do um, outreach, they do some support for these kinds of things. And so I went to one of their meetings that was for um, people whose parents have memory issues. And that was one of the big takeaways that I got from that meeting was that people that are in a dementia or Alzheimer's you know, state are already feeling insecure and confused. So when you're constantly correcting them, it just adds to their feelings of confusion and um, tension. And they described, you know, a situation like in a nursing home where a woman's spouse was long passed away, but she would come down to the lobby every night and say, you know, is he coming to dinner? Yep. And rather than having to tell her every single night that he's He's been dead dead, and have her experience that grief every single night yep. they would say he just called he's running late he'll meet you in the dining room yep. and by the time she got there she'd forgotten that she wanted that and that right. was just like a huge takeaway for me because I learned then that like I don't have to correct my mom I don't have to fix my mom and I don't have to play this role 
of like the one who's got the facts straight. Right, right. <laughs> because right. that's like a terrible role to be in. And I didn't want my interactions with my mom to be like, mom, you know, that's not what you had for lunch. Like, who, right, who cares? Right, right. And so now I'm like, like the things I agree to now that I'm just like, definitely, we definitely had nine dogs. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like I, I listen to myself now and I'm like, this is a crazy train. But I know it. It makes it better. It makes the energy yeah. better. It's tough to like it, it. That's the thing that always trips me up because that's always been my role in the family. Like the truth teller, like my mom always sort of had a creative sense of what actually transpired or what's happened. So that's never been different. It was exaggerated by her diagnosis. And even my dad was like, your mom always had a different way of looking at things. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, Sure. So now, like, when she's constantly, it's mayhem and tragedy and fire and murder and whatever, I do feel the need to, like, sort of steer it into a more positive place. So I'll be like, no, 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 daddy didn't fall. He didn't have a car accident. He did go to work, and I saw that he was doing some errands. So he'll be he'll be by later. Like, trying to reassure him that yeah. he's not dead. Yeah. Or that, oh, no, 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 the doctors looked at him, and he's fine. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, that's helpful. But it's it's hard to be the one who's always had, like, I've got the facts here, and the yeah. facts say... But those facts don't matter in the situation yeah. sometimes. Do you have siblings? Yeah, it's my brother, and he's sort Enough of said. I have a brother too. <laughs> yeah, and then and like it's so frustrating too because that's another dynamic. Like you want the support, and then when you reach out to the sibling, I I reached out to my sibling, and um, I just get nothing. I yeah. get nothing, and I think, you know, don't make the mistake of having regret when mom passes that you didn't do more, you didn't see her more or whatever. Like you need to make peace with that because if I hear any of that, I'm going to punch you in the face. Yeah. Because it's up to you to do stuff for her and dad. Like yeah. that's not my role to remind you that there you have parents too. Yeah. Like, and my brother and I, when we were going through all the stuff with mass health and all the paperwork we had to get, my dad was unsure where their birth certificates were. So I sent my brother all the information in the email and I said, just go to Boston website and order them. That's all I need you to do. And I called him and he was like, well, I'm busy and I got this and da, 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 da. And I said, I've, I've had it. And I just, I remember standing in my dining room and I don't know where it came from, but it just was like rage. And I was like, you're an asshole. You need to do this. These are your parents. And I hung up on him. And I think it was eight minutes later, I got the email from the <laughs> Boston City Hall, like you, the the birth certificates have been ordered. Yeah. yeah. And then he and then he called me. He's like, "Are we okay?" And I'm like, "I'm like, if if that's how things need to get done, and you need to hear that I'm fr that frustrated and that angry with you, then yeah, we're yeah. good." Yeah, a little rage never hurt anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it was like well, rage. Well, it actually probably has. It, it was like rage that came from people. my feet. Yeah. It was like fire out of my mouth. Yeah. Like, I was like, done. Yeah. My brother, I have to say, my brother and I are co-conspirators a lot. He's pretty helpful. He lives closer to my family, so he, um, but he's helpful for the most part. But I, I do find what's interesting in that dynamic is that my dad is more likely to tell be more honest with him interesting um, and I think it's just the like we don't want to bother Rilda the fragile woman in this situation you know there's something a father-son dynamic where sometimes 
my brother knows more, uh, like he'll know about an incident where this happened with mom or whatever that dad chose uh. not to tell me because he didn't want me to worry. Um, so we just have to remind my dad, like we're all on the same team. So there's no point in telling me something that you're not telling right, Josh or right, vice right. versa. Yeah, I make sure my brother's in the loop. Um, my dad relies way more on me. And even if I direct my father to my brother, he still comes back yeah. to me. Because my brother's hard to get a hold of. He's got his own life for whatever reason. He's got a better sense of how to be separate from it than I do. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he and I, when I talk to him about it, he's a great co-conspirator. But he's not present enough for me to feel like I have a partner to rely on in it. So that, that's a, that, that can be really tough. Yeah. Because I get really angry with him, but I can't. You know, I've already, I'm already angry. Like yeah. I can't be angry on multiple fronts. Mm -hmm. So there's part of it that I just have to let go. Yeah. Cause I need him as my ally. I don't need him as my enemy. Yeah, it's true. So I've already got the dementia as my enemy. It makes a good enemy. <laughs> How do you not worry about this for yourself? Like this be your part of your fate? fate? Um, I do actually, but not in a way that keeps me up at night. One of the biggest challenges for me in this whole journey, I mean, there's all kinds of challenges, but I find that the dynamic that my parents had, and I think a lot of it is generational, is that my mom managed much of the home, like mm -hmm. the the bills, the yep. kit, me and my brother's schooling, and did little things like we, we talked about earlier, like sending birthday cards. Yeah. And so um, she always did the laundry and my dad, and she also worked full time. My dad, I remember the excuse was always that my dad is colorblind and he couldn't sort things. And I'm, I now know that that's a lie and that like he, he could, he knows lights from darks. He's fine. I think he, that was a ruse. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. so what's happened is as my mom has fallen into this disease, my dad has almost had to learn these things Um on top of caring for someone that he loves very much in losing them in this painful way. So, you know, little, th you know, he'll call me and he'll kind of rattle off like, well, I, I went and bought stamps and then I picked up some groceries and like I got the oil <laughs> change in the car and I'm kind of just like, slow clap, dad. <laughs> like you get the adulting sticker for, for that. <laughs> but for him, those are because he, yeah. for much of his adult life, he was able to just go to work and come home and watch Tom Brokaw's evening news. And my mom took care of those things. So that's been really hard because like you mentioned, my dad doesn't remember my birthday any either. If yeah. my dad had Alzheimer's, my mom would be caring for him and still sending birthday cards. Absolutely. So that's one thing I talk about with my husband is that my husband and I's marriage is much different. Yeah. Um, it's much more equal in terms of, you know, we both work, we both do laundry, we both. And I know that, like I said, a lot of that's generational and a lot of it is, is very much by design. And so I tell him all the time, sometimes when I get sad, I say, promise me that if this happens to me, you send Amelia a birthday card, which is my daughter. Yeah, yeah. Like, don't let them feel the way I do, right. like I've lost them both. You know, like make sure that you, and my husband will know, like he'll be able, he'd be able to pick up more seamless, seamlessly, like taking care of the house and do those things yeah. because he's done it all along. Yeah. So I give him little pointers all the time. Like if this happens to me, you know, make sure you still send birthday cards, make sure. And I tell him something that I wish, I think my mom expressed this to me and I, I have to just believe it in my heart that, 
it's okay to put me in a nursing home. Yeah. And that's where I am with my dad is that my mom doesn't really know where she is. And my dad is basically a prisoner. He can't go away overnight. He can't, he sends her to adult daycare, but he has to be picking her up every day at 430. Yeah. So he's never been to my son's little league games. He's never because he's a slave to this disease. And so I tell my husband, if this happens to me, put me somewhere yeah, yeah, and then go be a good dad and grandfather yep. <laughs> because that's, that's what you can give me yeah. because I don't want my kids to miss out on all of that the way that right. I, that my brother and I are. So, so yeah, I think about it, but I also, I try to, um, I try to channel that into running marathons for research and hoping Absolutely. that like there'll be a survivor in my generation that, coming up soon <laughs> that they'll be the they're first already finding stuff disease. i think that's yeah. pretty amazing i've signed up to participate in research studies because i feel like it would be interesting to to provide you know whatever i can to know that um i worry sometimes especially being like perimenopausal and we're forgetting words like oh shit is that the yeah. sign um or think i hear a phone ringing and it's not there or whatever but I realize, like, you know, some of that is stress. Yeah. Some of that is, uh, I have a chronic back issue, and so I take medication, and some of that does make me foggy, and so I lose words sometimes. Yeah. Um, and it's but, something that I'm, like, passionate about because, like, with the fundraising and stuff, because this disease is so devastating, yeah. and our country is really not prepared to care for Absolutely all the people not. that are nope. diagnosed. So we really need to put a fire under the butts, not saying that researchers are like being lazy or something, yep. but it's, it's going to be a, I mean, I think they say someone is diagnosed every six minutes or yeah. something. So it's, it's going to, I think about that. I work in Harvard square and like, sometimes I walk by people that, you know, homeless that are district, you know, displaying some sort of like mental health you're yep. talking to themselves and I think yep. it's very likely that a lot of these people in this situation have dementia, dementia. Or Alzheimer's yep. and they didn't have the resources and, yep. the, and the services to get the kind of care that our parents are getting yeah. so they're out on the street and everybody just thinks they're crazy right but you know and that can't happen <laughs> to a whole generation of of us so it's really urgent for me too, I think part of how I process things is looking t- to find ways to be grateful and like, you know, again, my parents' resources, um, family being small, but still having each other, being able to find really qualified professionals to help, yeah. um, having some decent health care, living in an area that has facilities that are fantastic, mm-hmm. um, the Alzheimer's Association has great information and really things that are small but very helpful. And this was the first year that I participated in the Alzheimer's Walk. Mm-hmm. That was really emotional for me. Yeah. And um, I physically was struggling because of my back issue. I have numbness and weakness in one of my legs. And I really wasn't sure how far I could go. But I completed it and I felt great and it was such a beautiful community and atmosphere and I did it with a team from work and um, it just felt uplifting to me and it felt, um, I was just grateful, you know, like there's a lot of people that don't have that. As tough as it is um, losing a parent to this, it's it's also creating creating some great art from it too and 
and meeting I, people, which I is amazing. I used to complain about all the quote unquote disease walks. Like when you're going yeah. down Storrow Drive or something and there's like traffic and it's like, oh, it's the breast cancer walk this weekend or the pancreatic cancer. But now that I've done those walks, I recognize what a beautiful community that is and what it feels like to be surrounded by people that are going through the same thing that you and your family are going through. Yeah. And it's really empowering. Very like empowering. I, I get it now. Like I get why people need to gather and walk in a yeah. giant circle in t-shirts. And tell like our I stories. Yeah. And tell our stories. That's right. Do you have anything you'd like to say in, in just wrapping up? Um, this no. was a pleasure. Thank yes. you so much for spending time with me. No, I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. And I think like you said that um, being positive and recognizing that the good things for me that have come out of this experience are friendships and yep. art and new relationships with my dad. And yeah, me too. I feel that same way. My brother. And that's, that's what my mom would want. And yeah, I also absolutely. look at the, what I feel like I've displayed in terms of resilience and any success that I've had in storytelling or running or whatever. I always think back to like, that's all a tribute to my mom Yeah, that like she taught me how to do this. And if she could yeah. get in my ear, she would say like, have a good cry but then yeah. get back to work yeah, and like go, f you know, go for a run, go raise money, go help your dad, go whatever. Yeah. And like she instilled that in me. And so in a way I feel like everything that I'm doing to just get out of bed and not be sad is for her and because of her. Yeah. So yeah. Good. I feel like that head down, move forward, just that resilience is uh, definitely a family trait and I'm grateful for it. And uh, it's okay to feel sad and upset in times, but it sort of doesn't keep me from moving forward. So I'm appreciative of that as well. So, well, thank you so much. Thank you, my guest today. This is Hi Felicia podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan, and my guest was Rilda Kissel. Yay! Yeah.